uh, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, don't be embarrassed to pop your hand up and our, our ushers will be able to pass you one. And one down here and a couple over there. So if you need a Bible, feel free to pop your hands up and one over here. We're looking at the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, in chapter 18. If you found the chapter, if you found the passage, feel free to help your neighbor out to find it as well. John chapter 18. Now we're going to begin in verse 12, uh, and prior to this, uh, Judas has just betrayed Jesus, and Peter has cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. Jesus rebukes Peter, uh, heals the soldier's ear, and hands himself over to be arrested. And this is what happens next to Peter. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of, uh, of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, and he said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Our second reading comes from John chapter 21, so just a few pages over. Now, this is after the resurrection. The disciples are told to head off uh, to the Sea of Tiberias and wait for Jesus. And during the night, um, they decide to go out fishing. And unknown to them, uh, they don't catch anything. And unknown to them, a stranger appears on the shore. It's Jesus. He tells them where to fish. 
And then Peter recognizes Jesus, jumps off the boat and swims to him. So this is what happens. Chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of the other, his other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They said to him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were able to haul it in because of the, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped uh, for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. And so Simon Peter went on board and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of our Lord. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you sent your son into this world for his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you that he came to, to demonstrate uh, the immense love that you have for us, that you are a relational God who desires to be in relationship with us. 
As we've been through this sermon series, we see that Jesus interacted with so many people in such intimate ways, in such life-transforming ways. And so this afternoon we pray that as we encounter Jesus in your word, we would too have a restoration and transformation that would change and shape our lives. However we come today, whether we are going well in our faith or whether we are struggling, we pray that your word will do its work in us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, is it your experience in your Christian life, in your walk with Jesus, that struggles are many and failings often? Is that your experience in your Christian walk, that struggles are many and that failings are often? I ask that because in my own personal experience, I certainly feel that way. Uh, the long service leave was supposed to be a time of rest, especially spiritual rest. The time to be reading the Bible for 12 hours a day and then praying for the other 12 hours a day, right? You know, the really holy, godly thing for pastors to do when they're on sabbatical. But the reality was much different, right? Being around the family all the time and, and seeing uh, my impatience and my selfishness come out. Struggling to, to read the Word because I'm out of routine. Uh, different other struggles and sins that I experienced. Uh, pastors, I'm not sure what kind of uh, uh, feels that they give off. They're not high and mighty, holy, holy men who never sin. They, they, they struggle, as I, I'm sure, like I do. It sure seems that struggles are many and, and, and failings are many. From all the conversations I had over the last two months, I had the privilege of being back in Singapore and Malaysia, being able to meet up with lots of graduates uh, that I haven't seen for a long time, and even some of you. Uh, and you know how it is when the pastor and the wife visits... You want to tell them about how you're going, and, and you want to confess almost all your sins, which is a privilege to hear, but also sad to hear the struggles and failings that many of our brothers and sisters are going through as they go through work, as they begin their married lives, and as they have children. Over the years of ministry, the last 10 years, and before that even as a youth leader, to have lots of heart-to-heart conversations with many struggling Christians, whether it is struggles to have a wholehearted devotion <clears throat> to our Lord Jesus, whether it is battling with waning convictions about the faith, whether it is succumbing to all kinds of sins, sexual sin, greed, anger, and, and so on, or whether it is the failure to put our trust in Jesus. You know, not just to say that I believe in Jesus, but to actually entrust our entire lives into Jesus' control, our present and our future, our studies and our work, our singleness, and our marriage, and our children. In our, our struggling and, and our ongoing sin, sin and failures, we, we hope that we can be restored, can't we? We, we, we? No one likes being down in the dumps in a spiritual hole. And in those moments, we, we hope for restoration. <clears throat> when we are a new believer, sometimes our faith is fresh and exciting. And, and the experience and the expectation of, of restoration and transformation is great and it's quick. Well, maybe over the months and over the years, if you belong in the faith, maybe the expectation and the hope for restoration starts to dwindle. And you start to sense that maybe there is a growing distance between me and God, between me and my Lord Jesus. Maybe you start to have this low-level sort of spiritual dryness that you start to accept. Maybe fear starts to creep into your relationship with God. But you're never quite sure whether he wants you in his presence, whether you are 
qualified, you're worthy. And so you, you drift, don't you? And you, you settle for a distant relationship. And with this distance grows an unwillingness to serve. Because the, the, the Christian motivation and drive for service is love for God and for Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, how can you sacrificially serve Him? And so perhaps many of us feel like we don't quite want to step up and serve. We don't want to give our lives in service of others out of love for Jesus. It's a terrible place to be, isn't it? Now, have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt that way? I, I know I have. And I know some of you have because I've spoken to you about that. Maybe some of you are there right now, struggling in this way. And maybe some of you will struggle in this way in the future. Now, wherever we are, our passage this morning is just what we need. Our passage this morning, whether it's for today or, or for the future, they're the words of God that are meant to be a balm to our souls, to soothe us and comfort us and assure us, fill us with joy and hope. As we come to the story of Peter being restored, God is hoping for us to hear the same message that he had for Peter. Now, as we look at this passage, we're looking really at only five verses, right? John 21, verse 15 to 19. <clears throat> but jumping into these, this passage is kind of like watching the last five minutes of a movie. You know, the bit where they kind of resolve things. The technical term for the last bit of a movie or a story is called the denouement. Okay, it's a fancy French word. Don't say denouement. It's denouement. Okay, it sounds very classy. It's French. But it just means the resolution, the end of the story, the tying together of the loose pieces. Maybe the setting up of a sequel if you're a Marvel movie, right? To give you the taste for what comes next. It's not quite the climax, right? Because the climax is in John 20. But the story of John's gospel, the book of signs really, culminates, climaxes in Jesus' resurrection from the cross, right? He dies in chapter 19, resurrects from the dead, chapter 20. And in chapter 20, verse 13 and 31, gives us the kind of concluding words, the summary, the purpose statement of this book. I mean, if you're familiar with it, right? It's talks, John says, I wrote this book, and I've written all these signs about Jesus so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. That's his purpose. But suddenly you get chapter 21, <clears throat> right? The, the bit that comes just after, the denouement. And you're kind of thinking, well, it's not the climax, but it's still important. It's still meaningful. It's still something that we need to hear. It's not just an afterthought. It's not just like an appendix, you know, at the end of a book where no one ever reads. The denouement is important. It's just like Romeo and Juliet. Have you know Romeo and Juliet? They die in the climax. Sorry. Spoiler alert. All right. If you haven't read the book, what's wrong with you? Anyway, <clears throat> Romeo and Juliet, two star-crossed lovers from warring families, they fall in love, and because they, they're being kept apart, they drink poison, and in the climax, they die. Right? What happens in the Dunoimo? The families come before the tomb, and they see their dead, beloved children, and then they reconcile, right? A beautiful Dunoimo to Romeo and Juliet. Now, as the dust settles on the explosive climax of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're waiting with bated breath. As readers, we're thinking, well, what will happen now, right? What will happen to this gospel mission? Jesus came to fulfill the mission of dying for the sins of the world, but then we, we know that who's going to take it up? And we, we think it must be the disciples, but then they fail so miserably. As Jesus walks resolutely to the cross, 
in faithful fulfillment of the Father's plans, the disciples are getting worse and worse, shrinking further and further back. Who will continue on the mission that Jesus began and accomplished? Will they be restored? Will they come good? And so the action of John 21 zooms in, really, on the disciples. And then when we get to verse 15, it zooms in especially on Simon Peter. On Simon Peter. From the white shot of God's plans being fulfilled in the person, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it now narrows down to the disciples, especially Simon Peter. It gets personal. Right? It gets intimate. It gets emotional. It's heartwarming, soul-soothing stuff. But we can't appreciate these five verses until we hit the recap button on the next fix show, right? There's been 20 episodes before chapter 21, so we need to do a recap, right? a bit of a picture of what's happened to Peter leading up to chapter 21. So let's back this movie up, and let's have a look at Peter, right? So in John 1, we first meet Peter in John 1, verse 40, right? So have your Bibles open. We're going to scan through it pretty quickly and get a feel for what Simon Peter is like. Now, in chapter 1, verse 40, we see this guy called Simon, uh, who gets renamed to Peter by Jesus, uh, come to faith through his brother Andrew. Right? Andrew is the first one to meet Jesus, and then he goes to his brother uh, si- Simon and says, hey, I found the Messiah. And the way the story is told, Peter comes to faith very quickly, very easily, doesn't he? Now, on the way in the sermon, I'm going to mention Simon Peter or Peter, the same person, okay? Simon, Simon Peter, Peter, all the same person, uh, and I would... Just mention different names, doesn't matter, okay? They're all the same person. Now, so Simon Peter becomes a disciple of Jesus, the second one to follow Jesus. Now, next time we meet Simon Peter is in chapter 6. So turn to chapter 6, a couple pages over in your Bibles. And the context in chapter 6, verse 68, where we see Peter again, is that there are people who have been following Jesus in his early ministry because they have been wowed by his signs and his teaching. But now Jesus decided to teach very difficult things about who he is and how people have to respond to him. So large masses of people are starting to turn away from Jesus. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, what are you going to do? Will you leave too? And then Simon Peter says this in 68, chapter 6, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? Sorry, that's meant to be, yep. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One, the special one, the one and only one from God. Now this is a huge, a huge and bold confession from Peter. You have to realize that this is still very early days. And there's still so much that Simon Peter doesn't know about Jesus. And perhaps Simon Peter is a bit brash, right? A bit too bold in his confession. Like his his exuberant confession doesn't quite match what he does know about Jesus. What we see in Simon Peter is that clearly he's an all-in kind of guy. You know, you met people like that, right? Really all-in. And he's more than willing to confess the little that he does know. That's really great to see, isn't it? Peter if you kind of try and get into the story a bit more, you, you, you really love Peter. He is such an enthusiastic, keen Christian disciple, isn't he? Uh, he he's very uh, enthusiastic and bold, convicted and, and confesses it. Someone who doesn't know much, but what he does know, 
he trusts and he confesses. Sometimes we can really be inspired by those who are young in faith. In the first service, there's a big bunch of uh, teenagers that sit in one corner. Uh, and I know some of them are very bold in sharing their faith in school. Sometimes the problem with becoming mature in the faith is that we become more sophisticated and we put up all these barriers and we, we're more afraid to stand up for Jesus. But Simon Peter isn't like that, right? Now, the next scene we see Simon Peter is in chapter 13, right? So we'll flip over a few pages. Simon Peter in chapter 13. Really famous story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, many of us might be familiar with this story. The setting is that Jesus is about to be uh, betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He's about to be led to his crucifixion uh, on the cross. Okay? This is kind of the day before, the night before. And, and as he gathers disciples into this uh, upper room, uh, as the meal is about to begin, he bends down and he starts washing his disciples' feet. And many of us know that it's meant to symbolize the kind of sacri- sacrificial service the humble service that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God came on this earth to serve sinners, right? It's symbolized by this very humble, humiliating foot washing. Now, as Jesus comes to Simon Peter, what does Simon Peter do? He's like, no, no, uh-uh, you are not washing my feet, right? Only servants, only slaves do that kind of thing. You're my master. Don't wash my feet. You will never wash my feet. Is what Simon Peter says to Jesus. Anyway, Jesus explains the meaning of the foot washing to Peter as a symbol of being cleansed by Jesus when he dies on the cross. Now, uh, Simon Peter then says, well, if that's the case, then wash my hands, right? Wash my head, wash all of me. Give me a whole bath. He's so enthusiastic, isn't he? But he's also so ignorant. Right? He doesn't need all that, but he's so enthusiastic and so ignorant. I love Peter. So, so exuberant, so ignorant. And consistently through the, the Gospels, you read about Peter. He, he, he's just like a guy with a foot in the mouth. If anyone is going to say something stupid and say something quickly, it's Plum Peter. Right? He, he's a bit kind of thick. Uh, he's kind of a, a few light bulbs short of a Christmas tree. You know, that kind of idea. But when you think about it, we're all ignorant, aren't we? Every disciple of Jesus Christ is ignorant to some degree. We don't know everything. We say the wrong things. We believe the wrong things sometimes. But I wonder whether we're as enthusiastic and as exuberant as Peter was. Right? He's so keen. I love that about him. Now, his exuberant ignorance continues to be showcased as we get to the end of the chapter. In chapter 13, verse 36. So as we're moving on, we're still in that scene in the Last, in the last Supper. Right? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, has just got up from the table after dinner and has gone off to begin the betrayal process. So if you all know the story, one of the, of the disciples of Jesus, one of the twelve, Judas, he sells Jesus out for money. So this is the scene where he's walking away, getting the authorities to meet him at the Garden of Gethsemane where he knows Jesus will be later on. Right? Now as he does that, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that the time is coming for him to go to the cross. He's a bit cryptic about it. He says, I'm going to go somewhere where you cannot follow, right? So the disciples are not quite sure what Jesus is talking about, but we know that Jesus means he's going to the cross, and he's giving them forewarning. Now, Simon Peter, at this point, pipes up, as always, in verse 37, chapter 13, verse 37. 
is what Peter says to Jesus, right? Lord, why can I not follow you now? Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. Does Simon Peter even know what he's saying? In in Peter's typical fashion, he's well-intentioned, isn't he? To him at that very moment, I'm sure he meant every word that he said. He loves Jesus, he wants to follow him, and he will even give his life up for Jesus. But you know, good intentions, in a secure room, after a good meal, very easy to have. But in the garden, with hostile crowd, how will that hold up? Kind of like us, isn't it? In a well-intentioned, in a comfortable surrounding, with belly, food in our belly after a good meal and some wine, easy to say, I will lay down my life for Jesus. But when the persecution comes, when our faith is put to the test, how will our intentions look? At this stage, it is not Peter who will lay down his life for Jesus, because Jesus is the one who has to lay down his life for Peter and for the disciples and for everybody, the sins of the world, for that is why he came. At this stage, Peter's intentions and Peter's self-assessment is too inflated, vastly outstripping his strength. And as we know, Jesus tells Peter this faithful prediction in verse 38. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, hours later, after Jesus says these faithful words to Simon Peter, Jesus is arrested and he's put on trial before he's crucified. Now, we jump forward to chapter 18. Okay, jump forward to chapter 18. And here we see Peter at his lowest. The prediction of Jesus sadly comes true, doesn't it? Now, after Jesus is arrested, so the beginning of chapter 18, he's arrested uh, in the scene in the garden where, you know, the mob comes to grab him, and then Peter takes out his sword with all courage and slices off one of the, 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 the soldier's servant's ears, okay? And, and, and we, Jesus is being brought to the courtyard and into where the high priest was going to trial Jesus, right? Annas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter follows, but he stops at the doorway where the trial is happening. There's another disciple with Peter, the one that Jesus loves, probably John, right? That's how he calls himself. He, he's known by the, by the authorities, so he follows Jesus. But Peter is unknown to the authorities at this stage. And so Peter says, better stay that way, right? I'll stay outside incognito so that I don't get in trouble. But John's inside with Jesus, looking, going, where's Peter? And then he sees Peter out there, so he sends a servant to get Peter, come on in, right? Wouldn't you want to join in and defend Jesus, stand up for Jesus? So he sends the servant girl out. Verse 17. Servant girl says to Peter, you're one of the Jesus' disciples, aren't you? And out comes Peter's first disowning of Jesus. I am not. It's his first curt reply, isn't it? I am not. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, the scene is set for us where they are around this charcoal fire outside the courtyard. This is where the servant girl first asked Jesus, uh, asked Peter the question. When you jump to verse 25, you will see that it's the exact same scene. It's like in a movie, right, where they cut to another scene, and then they cut back, and it's exactly the same scene, and time is continuous. So you can imagine, Peter's here, this is the fire, the servant girl's like, aren't you with Jesus? And then he's like, I am not. And you can imagine there's a crowd around this fire warming their hands, and they say... Are you not one of Jesus' disciples? I'm sure you are. 
Right? That's what happens in verse 25, right? And then Peter says, second time, I am not. And there's someone else, a relative of the poor fellow who had his ear cut off, right, in the garden. And he goes, I, I'm an, I, I saw you with Jesus. And so he says, surely you are one of Jesus' disciples. I was there, right? My cousin got, had his ear cut off by you, right? And Peter says, for the third time, I am not. And the rooster crows. Don't you feel sad for Peter? Doesn't your heart break when he realizes this? Because in another gospel, we are told that tears immediately started streaming down his face and he ran away in shame for he had denied his Lord, his master Jesus, whom he had been following every day for the past three years. And so we come to Simon Peter's lowest moment, where his convictions have crumbled, his courage has been crushed. And we feel for Peter, don't we? And we know that when we think about it, under the same circumstances, we would fare no better. Because we know that in far lesser circumstances, we have disowned Jesus. In far lesser circumstances, we have denied him in many different ways. So we feel for Peter. Now, before we get to John 21, which we're hoping to get to, because it's the good news, before we get there, though, I want to point out two very important things. Now, the first thing is that Peter didn't just disown Jesus. Right? Peter didn't just disown Jesus. He disowned Jesus as an intimate disciple of Jesus. He is part of the inner circle. Right? If you follow through the Gospels, it's Peter, James, and John. Right? They were the closest. They had the most time with Jesus. They're the ones who had the most understanding, the most explanation, the most relationship. If anyone was going to remain faithful to Jesus, it would be them, especially Simon Peter. Secondly, I want you to notice that bit that cut the scene of Peter's first and second denials, right? There's this insert, isn't it, of five verses in chapter 18, verse 19 to 24, right? John, who's written this gospel, has been the director that's inserted this scene. And what's this scene about? It is Jesus before Annas, the high priest, isn't it? And in this scene, there's a dramatic contrast. Peter versus Jesus. Jesus stands up to the questioners, and denies nothing. Whereas Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Jesus towers over his questioners and he denies nothing, right? He's like, yeah, you say I'm the Christ? Yes. But Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. I do not know Jesus. Now what does all this show? Why am I pointing these two points out for? What does it show? Now what it shows is that the story of Peter is so much more than just a character lesson. It is so much more than just a character lesson. It is more than just, we are just like Peter, don't be like Peter. Have you heard of many of those sermons? Right? We are like them, don't be like them. Right? It is not just a character study on what, what to be like and not be like. You see, the story of Peter is a gospel lesson. It's not just a character lesson, it's a gospel lesson. First and foremost is a gospel lesson to show us that Jesus alone must go to the cross. That Jesus alone can go to the cross. He is the only one 
with a perfect faithfulness that enables him to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That the failure of Jesus' closest followers is just a micro view of the macro problem of all of humanity. In a way, the disciples before Jesus' death and resurrection is a picture of all humanity. That no matter how close you are to God, you still need saving. And of course, those who are far, far away, they need saving in the same way. You see, the story of Peter is leading us up to the climax of John's gospel, verse chapter 19 and 20, right? It's leading us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's only when the death and resurrection of Jesus happens in chapter 19 and 20 that it prepares us to see the restoration of Peter in chapter 21. For without the gospel, Peter is lost, and so are we. But because of the gospel, we can move forward to John 21 and, and, and feel and, and sense and know the joy and relief of restoration. We've got to keep reminding ourselves that John wrote this gospel, as he tells us in John 20, verse 30 and 31, so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we will have eternal life. First and foremost, this is a gospel lesson. So that's the intro, right? That's the 20-minute introduction to our little passage uh, here this afternoon. And the passage that we're looking at in verse 15 to 19 of chapter 21 is actually very simple. It's simple to understand, but it is profound in its impact. And I hope we'll get that, right? It's simple to understand, but it is profound in its impact. Now, at the start of this denouement of chapter 21, we find the disciples are back in the fishing business. Very likely, Simon Peter, who is one of the fishermen, remember, along with his brother Andrew, uh, he's probably the one that leads them back into fishing. Which, when you think about it, is a massive anticlimax. Right? There's the, John's gospel has been resurrection of Jesus. Let's go fishing. Right? It's kind, of, it's kind of weird when you think about it. I want you to get into the feels of the passage. It's like they're, they're lost. They're, it's like they're uncertain on what to do next. Now, perhaps they're just waiting for some instructions to know what to do next. Perhaps they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be sent as Jesus promises in the previous chapter. Whatever it is, it just seems like they're not sure. But anyway, Jesus comes and appears to them and helps them to catch a huge bunch of fish. And it's kind of the first hint, perhaps, that their mission will be restored. For if you know your Gospels, earlier on, Jesus had said to his disciples, you will become fishers of men. You will be those who will continue my mission to bring people into my kingdom. And maybe this is the first hint that their mission will be restored. Anyways, we get to the end of this uh, first section, up to verse 14. The focus is on the disciples, and then they're having this breakfast with Jesus. And finally, we get to verse 15. It hones in on Simon Peter. Breakfast is now over, and Jesus has some one-to-one time with Simon Peter. We've all been waiting for this moment. I don't know about you guys, but I've been waiting for this moment, right? And, and I want you to really, when you read the Bible, don't just read it as some text on a page. Get into the story, if it's a story. Get into the argument, if there's a, there's a discussion being made, right? Get into it. Can you imagine Peter at this point? Imagine you're Peter. You have denied your Lord three times. I am not. I am not. I am not. Rooster crows, and I'm crying, and I run away. And then I go to the empty tomb, and I don't get to see Jesus. But then he appears in this room afterwards, where I get to see his hands and his feet, but... It didn't seem like I had my chance to talk to him. Everyone was too amazed and awed. And I just, 
I was feeling maybe a bit scared because I denied him. Maybe I was still feeling extremely sad and shameful and guilty. And suddenly now I find myself one-to-one with Jesus. And you wonder, what's going to happen here? Now, we've all been kids before. Some of us are kids now still. And you do something so bad, right? Maybe, maybe your parents have this Ming Dynasty vase. <clears throat> and you're playing soccer, right, in the house. And pyong, right? Or whatever it is that you've done that you know, confirm, that's it. And you're waiting for that talk. You know what I'm talking about? That talk. I think that's how Peter might have been feeling, right? Waiting for that talk. Wondering what his master will say to him after what he's done. And you kind of think to yourself, I've disappointed my parents in many different ways, but Peter, could it be any worse than what he did? Could it be unforgivable? Do you think he might have thought that? Perhaps. Could it be unforgivable? So we get to chapter 21, verse 15. Peter and Jesus are face to face. And Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Amazing, isn't it? It's not a rebuke. It's not a lecture. It's not a death stare, a glare of, of rage. It's not even a disappointed shake of the head, no tisk tisk. Jesus gets to what's most important to him. Do you love me? Relationship is what matters most to Jesus. Loving Jesus is what matters most. At the very heart of it all, Jesus just wants to know, do you or will you love me? At the heart of it all, that's what it is, right? Do you and will you love Jesus? Now, as we hear this, right, he says, do you love me more than these? Maybe you're wondering, what are these? Now, it could be that Jesus is pointing to the fish and the fishing boat, the fishing business, and said, you love me more than your earthly pursuits. Or maybe he's saying, you love me more than you love these disciples, right, your friends. Or maybe he's saying, you love me more than these disciples love me, right? Is your love better than everybody else's? Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what exactly it is. The point is, he's asking Peter, will you love me more than anyone or anything else? Will you really, really love me? Now, you've got to realize, this is not the insecure request of a jilted lover. You know when you break out with someone, sometimes they come running back to you and say, will you love me, take me back, right? It's not like that. It's not like that at all, right? You see, it's an incredible invitation to re-enter into loving communion with the Son of God, right? To re-enter into a loving relationship with the God of the universe, the King of kings, the only Savior. It's an invitation to re-enter into the, the relationship that we were created to have for all eternity. And we know that this invitation is made possible because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for our sins. That even such a denial as Simon Peter, even such a shameful offense can be forgiven. Even such faithlessness can be restored. It's an amazing message that can be hope for all of us. That it can be hope for all of us. Simon Peter replies, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And there's a difference here, isn't it? Compared to his previous younger bravado, 
Here, he doesn't call on his self-assessment, on what he can do. He says, you, Jesus, you know my love. You know my heart. And to some degree, it's acknowledging that it is Jesus who enables it, right? It's implied there that Jesus' knowledge isn't just a, a, a passive knowing, but a, an active one, an enabling knowledge to enable Peter to love Jesus again. And as we know in this, in this story, Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's not hard to see why he asked him three times, isn't it? Because Peter denied Jesus three times, and, and Jesus is giving him an opportunity to reverse that completely. It reminds us over again that Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross is able to completely cover over our sins. There is a complete restoration. It's not just a bit, and then we've got to work for a bit. No, it's all of it. Jesus covers it all. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a perfect and complete cover for the sinner who trusts in Jesus. Now, but that's not all that restoration is. Having been restored into relationship, Simon Peter, as we, shall see, as we see in this passage, is restored to serve Jesus and his people. Right after Jesus, uh, Peter says, uh, you know that I love you, what does Jesus say? He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Jesus responds to each declaration of loving trust with a renewal of Simon Peter's purpose. That he, the way to show love for Jesus in one big part is to love his people and to serve them. The disciples were to become Jesus' apostles, to bring the gospel to the world, right? to be the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. All of Jesus' flock belongs to Jesus, but Peter and others were given the task of nurturing them, of building them up. For Peter, he will get a chance to fulfill the bold claim that he made back in chapter 13. Remember that claim where he says that he will lay down his life for Jesus? Now Peter is told by Jesus that that will come true. It's a little bit cryptic, but basically he says, someone will address you because you are unable to do so yourself because you're in chains. And then you'll be stretched out, which is a euphemism for dying on the cross. And he foretells Peter's death, that he will die in the same way that Jesus died. He will follow Jesus. Now, legend has it that when Simon Peter was crucified, he didn't think himself worthy to die in exactly the same way as his Lord and Savior. So he requested to be crucified upside down. And legend has it that that's the way that Peter died, upside down on the cross. And so we see a beautiful picture that Peter's restoration is complete. Having failed so miserably, he is restored back into loving relationship with his master and is restored back to purpose, to service, to his master. For the practical expression of love for Jesus is obedience and service to him and to his people. John will write letters to the church later on to say, that how do you know you love God? Because you obey his commandments and you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The practical expression of loving Jesus is loving and serving others. Now, what has hearing Peter's story done for you today? All right, well, let's, wrap, let's wrap things up and let's reflect on this. What has Peter's story done in you and for you today? What have you heard as God has been trying to speak to you? Now, firstly, do you need to hear that restoration is possible? Do you need to hear that restoration is possible? Always possible. Now, why is it that it's always possible? Because Jesus stood firm and faithful to the end when no one else could. 
Not even the closest of Jesus' disciples who saw him and, and who touched him and who heard him in all of his earthly glory. They couldn't do it, but Jesus could. He remained faithful to the end. It's always possible. Why? Because Jesus offers restoration to all who will put their trust in him. Whoever trusts him, the promise is that we have a complete restoration. Now, you've, I'm, I'm sure that most of you in this room have heard this before but that it hasn't really fully sunk in sometimes. Because in our failings, we forget. In our struggles, we doubt. In the ongoing nature of our sinfulness, we start to really wonder whether we can be intimate with our Lord and Savior. And fear starts to enter into our relationship. And we need to be reminded that love casts out fear. That all love, perfect love casts out fear. And we're being invited over and over and over again to love the Lord Jesus who first loved us. And to know that the love that we have for Jesus is something that Jesus knows and that Jesus enables. Now, so whether it is that you're a first time today considering whether you want to respond to Jesus' invitation to love him, or whether you've responded many times and are feeling like whether you can still respond or not, I want to encourage you to respond. For Jesus says to us the same exact words. He says to Peter, Will you love me more than these? Will you love me with all your heart, mind, and soul? The second thing is, do we need to hear that restoration is both into loving relationship as well as sacrificial service? Both into loving relationship as well as sacrificial service. You see, Peter wasn't just invited back into communion. He was invited back into service. But that service, that sacrificial service, is fueled by his love for Jesus first, right? For no service of Jesus is ever done well when we're not motivated by love. We're motivated sometimes by legalism, by, by, by obligation, right? By fear. They never end well. But if we are walking closely with Jesus and we know his love and we love him, it's so much easier to serve the people around us, isn't it? You see, that's what we're created for, isn't it? Ephesians 2, very famous verse, about how we've been saved by grace through faith. And then two verses later, it ends the sentence by saying, for we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, in which we walk, saved by grace to do good works of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, same thing. For those who are in Christ are a new creation who have received the ministry of reconciliation. We've received reconciliation with our Lord and Savior in order that we might do what? Engage in that same ministry of reconciliation to the world. Saved to serve. So I want to ask you guys, right? Some of you here, many of you here call yourself Christians. But I wonder how many of you have been walking along in your Christian faith with this low-grade spiritual dryness, with this feeling of distance from Jesus, without really expressing and experiencing that love that really drives our ministry. How many of you have been just stagnant for too long? or maybe even shrinking back from serving. The solution isn't to try harder, but to return back into the love of Jesus. And driven by that, motivated by that, then to serve those around us, to step up and love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to bring reconciliation to the world around us. Now, that's not easy, is it? It's easy to respond to Jesus' question, do you love me, with trite answers. 
that, you know, we'll meet like Peter sometimes, that we're willing in our mind, maybe even in our mouth, we're quick to say, yes, I love Jesus. But when we get real and we know our own hearts, we, we struggle. Now, it's so, so weird. Last night I was reading this book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. Right, I haven't quite finished it yet. Sorry, Kai, I'll return to you soon. Um, but it's weird. I don't usually read books the night before I preach, right, because I'm trying to memorize a sermon and all that. But for some reason, I picked up the book and I started reading it. And the passage that I read uh, was a suggestion from Francis Chan to those who struggle to love Jesus. And I've taken it and I modified it for our purposes. And, and I want to read out some of the suggestions that I found immensely helpful for me. And I want you to consider it for yourself as to whether this is something that you want to do. I'm going to get you to close your eyes as I say this so you can focus. And at the end of it, I'm going to pray. Okay? So uh, if you're happy to close your eyes and think about what I'm saying and whether you want to do these things, and then later on, I'm going to pray. Don't merely pretend that you love Jesus, especially if you're struggling to do so. Instead, tell him how you feel. Tell him that he isn't the most important thing in this life to you and that you're sorry for that. Tell him that you've been lukewarm, that you've chosen whatever it is that you've chosen over him time and again. Tell him that you want to change you, that you long to genuinely love him more than anything else in this world. Tell him that you want to find true satisfaction and pleasure and joy in your relationship with him. Tell him that living for yourself is so much easier and so tempting. Tell him that you want to die to self and live for him. Because following Jesus and serving his people is so much better and the only thing that makes eternal sense. Heavenly Father, we are saddened by the failures of the disciples, especially Peter. And we see in them the same failings in us. We who call on Christ as Lord and Savior continue to deny him in many different ways. Choosing sin, choosing self, choosing the world, choosing to say no to Jesus and veering away from the path that Jesus has paid for us. We seek for your restoration and we are so glad, so, so glad and thankful that you are more than willing and able to restore us. We praise Jesus that he alone is and was perfectly faithful so that he is able to be the perfect savior who provides a complete cover over our sins and therefore able to completely restore us. Please amaze and astonish us with the love that we are invited to give to and receive from Jesus Christ, your Son, the everlasting King and the only Savior. Help us to grasp the immense gravity and privilege that this is. And please help our love to drive our service to Jesus and his people. Having received restoration and transformation, please cause us to bring restoration and transformation to others around us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen.